0: My name is Jeff. I am one of the pastors here at Portico Arlington. Uh, and in fact, this is my first Sunday on staff here as a full time pastor at Portico, which is. <laughs> yeah, I'm very excited uh, and eager to jump in and help the other pastors lead and shepherd our church. Uh, I would just ask, not only for me, but for all of the pastors here and for the deacons here and our ministry leaders, that you would just be praying for us, that you'd be praying for us, that we would lead well, shepherd well, be wise, and uh, uh, be faithful. So pray for that. Pray for that for us and for our families. Uh, we are in Galatians this morning, continuing on in our series. So if you, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and open it. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 2 this morning, Galatians 2, and we're going to be in verses 11 through 14. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some Bibles in the pew in front of you if you need one. I'm going to go ahead and read uh, our text this morning, read these verses, and then pray, and then we'll get going. This is Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to, to have your word, to be able to read it, to be able to read it together and hear it together, learn from it, and be reminded of, of your goodness and your grace. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of your word this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would teach us and instruct us and encourage us with what we need to hear this morning. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, so I have a question for you, not one to necessarily answer out loud. But the question is, do you like conflict? Do you like conflict? I would imagine there are some in this room who who might enjoy conflict. Maybe enjoys a little strong. That might be a little strong. Maybe you don't shy away from conflict, okay? You see the benefits of disagreement and arguing and debate, can produce some good things out of that. There's, there's a negative side of that, too. Uh, you may just enjoy being right and want to let other people know how right you are. And it might be coming out of pride or arrogance. But on the more positive side, you may have a strong passion for truth, and you want to defend truth, and you want others to know truth, and you want others to live the right way. But I would guess that probably most of us many of us don't like conflict. We like to avoid conflict. It's unpleasant. It's uncomfortable. There are a couple of phrases sort of in our cultural vernacular these days that sort of illustrate our tendency to avoid conflict. So one of them is ghosting, right? So uh, instead of, if there's, there's someone in your life who is difficult instead of having a hard conversation with them about what's going on you might ghost them by just cutting them off completely cutting off communication trying to disappear out of their lives without any messiness another phrase in use right now is quiet quitting okay so instead of raising problems at work with your boss or your coworkers or even looking for a new job and leaving that job, you might just be putting in sort of the bare minimum to get by and not get fired. Um, but we don't have those hard conversations that we might need to. And avoiding conflict can also happen in more subtle ways where we continue to have relationships with our family, our fellow church members, our friends, our neighbors. Uh, but when we see that they're living a life that is not wise or they're in sin, We may not confront them. We might stay quiet. Maybe we're afraid of damaging that relationship. Maybe we're afraid of being wrong. Maybe we're afraid that they might fight back and talk to us about something in our life that maybe we don't want to talk about. In our text this morning, what I read a minute ago, Paul shows us that conflict is necessary at times, and can be a good thing especially when the gospel is threatened and other people are being harmed. And we will see this morning that God gives us the grace we need to confront others when they are not walking in step with the gospel and he gives us the grace we need to receive correction when we need to be corrected. He gives us grace to correct and he gives us grace to be corrected. So let's go, let's go verse by verse here in our passage this morning so we can understand what's going on in the story and then consider some ways that it can apply to us today. So I'm going to read verse 11 again. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So this first verse in our short passage is establishing the characters and the setting We hear from, first of all, the Apostle Paul. He's narrating the story. He's the author of this letter, just like he is through the rest of the book of Galatians. And Paul is in the city of Antioch, which is in Syria, a country to the north of Jerusalem and the rest of Judea. And just a couple of notes about Antioch. We read about Antioch in Acts, and it's the first place where followers of Jesus are called Christians. We also learn there that Jewish believers were preaching the gospel to, their, to, their, to the Gentiles around them and seeing Gentile brothers and sisters come to know Christ. And so Antioch is the setting here. And we also meet Cephas. And Cephas is another name for the apostle Peter. Earlier in this chapter from last week, we saw that uh, Peter and James and John, all of them apostles, are in uh, Jerusalem, and they're viewed as pillars or influential leaders in the early Christian church. So Peter's a really important figure, obviously, as an apostle, disciple of Christ in the early church. And he comes to Antioch, and during that visit, Paul tells us that he opposed Peter to his face. He confronts Peter. There's conflict between these two apostles, between these two giants of the early Christian church. There's there's conflict here, and as we read on, we'll see why. Verse twelve. For before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So here we see that, that during his time in Antioch, he's visiting Antioch, Peter, who is Jewish, was eating with Gentiles. He was eating with non-Jewish people. Now, this is notable for a couple of reasons. First, historically, Jews had avoided eating with or, or having friendships with people from other nations because Gentiles were viewed as as considered unclean, sinful people, and thus the motivation was that the people of God should separate themselves from Gentiles in order to maintain purity and cleanliness. And second, the Jewish people had, for a long time, followed various dietary laws and food restrictions. And these were articulated... In the Old Testament, a couple examples uh, Leviticus 11, Leviticus chapter 11, Deuteronomy chapter 14, there are lists of animals and fish and birds that the people of Israel were permitted to eat, allowed to eat, and then there were lists of animals that they were prohibited from eating. Some foods were clean, others were unclean. Now, Peter, as a Jewish person, would have followed these dietary laws throughout his life. Uh, we even read in Acts chapter 10 of how God appeared to Peter in a vision and he laid out this sheet with all these animals and reptiles and birds on them. And he, he tells Peter, go ahead, kill, eat, take. But Peter initially resists and says to God, I can't do that. I've, I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. And God replied to him and said, what I have made clean, do not call unclean. In that vision, God revealed to Peter that, and to the rest of us that the old covenant dietary laws did not need to be followed by the people of God. And even more than that, it meant that Gentiles who repented and believed the gospel were as welcome into the people of God as Jews who did the same. So as a result of this vision, revelation from God, Jews and Gentiles freely eat together, fellowship together, belong to God's people in God's family together that wall of hostility that had previously existed had been knocked down by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And so we see here in Galatians 2 verse 12 that Peter is enjoying this freedom. He's eating and fellowshipping and bringing friends with Gentiles there in Antioch. But something happens. Visitors from Jerusalem arrive, and when they arrive... Peter starts acting differently. He withdraws from his Gentile friends. He separates himself from them. He no longer eats with them. Why did he do this? Well, the text says that he was afraid. He was afraid. He was afraid of specifically what's referred to as the circumcision party, or another way of translating it is those of the circumcision so who are, who are these people, right? Well, we've likely seen them earlier in this chapter. Paul tells us that there were false teachers in Jerusalem who insisted that Titus, a Gentile, must be circumcised. They were requiring non-Jews to be circumcised in order to be accepted as the people of God. But as Paul hammers home throughout the book of Galatians, this requirement was in direct contradiction to the gospel. The gospel says that faith alone in Christ alone is sufficient to be justified. So these opponents of the gospel, they not only believe that circumcision was necessary for salvation, but the text indicates here they also believe that adherence to Jewish dietary laws were required as well. And so perhaps fearing persecution from these people, Peter responds with hypocrisy. We don't have any indication here that Peter changed his mind or like his convictions changed about whether it was okay for him to eat with Gentiles. His beliefs hasn't changed. At least we have no reason to believe, but his behavior did. His actions changed. He's being hypocritical. And so in this moment, Peter is more concerned about pleasing other people than he is about pleasing God. He's more concerned about what other people think and how they may respond more than he's concerned about what he knows to be true. And Paul is going to call him out for this. Verse 13, continue on. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When we sin, it doesn't just affect ourselves. We see that Peter's actions led other people astray. Mentioned earlier, Paul—sorry, Peter was a revered and respected leader in the early Christian church, likely held with high regard among the believers there in Antioch. And so they see him acting one way, and they follow his lead. They stopped eating with Gentiles, They separated themselves. Even Barnabas, Paul's missionary partner, acted hypocritically just like Peter did. And that's probably not too surprising to us, is it? People look to their leaders for for guidance and direction in how they are to act. And they are prone followers. People who are being led are prone to act in that way too. They model, they behave what's modeled for them. And this is a sobering reminder for those of us who lead, for those of us who lead in our home, those who lead in our church, those who lead in our workplace. People are watching us, our kids are watching us, our friends and neighbors are watching us, our coworkers, our employees are watching us. We need to remember this because how we act can either benefit others and lead them or point them to righteousness and righteous living or it can harm them and lead them to sinful living. Peter not only erred in leading these others away and leading them astray and tempting them to sin, but he also threatened to harm his Gentile brothers and sisters with his actions at best, these Gentiles were probably left confused. What's going on? Just We were just eating and drinking and having fun with our Jewish brothers and sisters, and now all of a sudden they want nothing to do with us. What's, what's going on here? Why don't they want anything to do with us? At best, they're confused. At worst, they may have been tempted or convinced that, that they needed some human work, that they needed to follow these dietary laws in addition to faith in Christ to be saved. And they may have been tempted to follow another gospel, a false gospel, the one that Paul is taking this letter to fight against. And so finally, we see here how Paul confronts Peter over his hypocrisy. We come to verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Here we see Paul fight for the truth of the gospel. Peter's sin was public. It had public consequences. It led others astray. And so Paul's rebuke was public, correcting the record, trying to get those in Antioch back on track with what the truth of the gospel was saying. Paul recognized that what Peter and the others were doing were inconsistent with the message of the gospel. In fact, their actions were a threat to the gospel. The gospel does not say, repent and believe and be circumcised. The gospel does not say, repent and believe and eat certain foods. The gospel says, repent and believe. Justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. It is trust in what he has done for us, not what we have done. Nothing else. No human work. No ceremonial law just faith, faith in the Son of God who gave himself for us. And even that faith is a gift from God. We can't boast even in our faith that's been given to us by God. All we can boast in is what God has done for us. All right, so we've seen what's going on in these verses got some more understanding of this conflict, this confrontation. But why does this text matter for us today? How can we take a story about a conflict over Jewish dietary laws and apply it to our lives? I want to make four observations from the text that continue to apply for us today. Those are Christians. The first one is Christians' sin. Second is Christians receive grace third is Christians correct, and then fourth is Christians give grace. Christians sin, Christians receive grace, Christians correct, and Christians give grace. So let's take these one at a time. First of all, Christians sin. So this is this is a frustrating reality, is that Christians sin. We continue to sin, even after we repent of our sinful ways and turn to Christ in faith. We are no longer slaves to sin, to be sure, but we still wrestle with our sinful nature and too often succumb to the temptations of the devil or of our flesh. this, This frustrating reality was a topic in our house Recently, uh, as we heard earlier about the catechism class, we've, our family's been going through the new, the new City Catechism over the course of the last year. And one of the, and my two, my two oldest kids were, were in that class, and one of the questions recently asked this. It asked, of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension? Of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension? Uh, what's the answer? I'm kidding. No. <laughs> one of the parts of the answer... One of the benefits of Christ's ascension to us is that he sends his Spirit. After he ascended to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit. And elsewhere in the catechism, we learned that one of the ways that the Spirit helps us is by giving us the desire to obey God, a desire that we did not have before coming to faith in Christ. And so one of my kids observed, well, if we have the Holy Spirit, how come we keep sinning? And I said, <laughs> It's a really good and tough question because it's true, right? The reality is we, have, we as Christians have the Holy Spirit within us helping us to obey God and not to sin. We have a desire to not sin. But the other reality is that while we remain on this earth, we will still struggle with desires that are in opposition to God, desires to sin is our old nature. And Peter was painfully aware of this. We've already seen this morning how Peter messed up in Antioch. Unfortunately for Peter, this is not his first public documented mess up. As many of you know, earlier in his life as one of the 12 disciples of Christ, he's walking with Jesus, and Peter boldly declares to Jesus, I'm sticking with you no matter what. I'll go to jail with you. I'll even die with you. I'm with you to the end. As we know, Peter did not fulfill that promise, that commitment. Jesus is arrested. Peter is asked publicly multiple times hey, you're with him, right? You're with Jesus? You're one of his guys? And Peter denied knowing him not once, not twice, but three times. He abandoned Jesus when the going got tough. Now, we may be tempted reading this, looking back, shaking our head, waving our finger. Come on, Peter, what are you doing? But it should be humbling to us because we are all like Peter. We have all sinned, we've been forgiven, and then we sin again, and then we're forgiven, and we sin again. Even though we know better, even though there is desire within us not to sin, we continually struggle with it. But the good news for Peter (laughs) and the good news for the rest of us is that Christians receive grace. It's our second observation here. Christians receive, so Christians sin, and then Christians receive grace. So after he denied Christ those three times, Peter went and wept bitterly. He experienced godly sorrow over his sin, and God forgave him. God continued to use him mightily for the church. He preached the gospel and helped establish the early church. He was one of the pillars of the early church. Even after abandoning Christ, he was forgiven and used. And then after this hypocrisy in Antioch, two of his own letters are inspired by God and included in the New Testament and continue to benefit the people of God today. Peter, the people pleaser, Peter, the hypocrite, Received grace from God. And that's very good news for us hypocrites and us people pleasers. But it's also helpful to remember that the guy who confronted Peter also needed to receive grace, Paul. Paul called himself the chief of all sinners. This was a man who persecuted Christians. This was a man who put men and women into prison. He was violently hostile to God and his people. Yet God graciously intervened on the road to Damascus. He changed Paul's heart. It was gracious to forgive him of his sin and used him as well for the kingdom of God. Paul, the enemy, received grace. This is good news. It's good news for Peter, for you know, those who are like Peter, and it's good news for us and those we know, who have lived lives, lived lives of grave sinfulness, who have sinned much against God, who lived lives in opposition to God. And it's also good news for us who know people who are living that way today, family, friends. Who, are, who we think are so removed from God that we can't possibly see how they would come to know Christ. Let the story of Paul encourage you to continue praying for the lost people in your life, to continue sharing Jesus with those people, to continue trusting God to call them to himself. If Christ can redeem someone like Paul, he can redeem anyone. So Christians sin, Christians receive grace. Third, Christians correct. Christians correct. So in light of what we just talked about, christians sin, Christians receive grace, we may be a bit gun-shy to think that we can correct other people. But Christians who have had their hearts changed Love God and love others. We have affection for God. We have affection for his word. We have affection for other people, those in our life. And when we love something, we love someone, we stand up for them. We fight for them. We want what's best for them. When Paul saw that the gospel was being threatened by Peter's hypocrisy, Paul corrected him because Paul loved God and he loved God's gospel. When Paul saw that Peter was leading others astray, Paul corrected him because Paul loved Peter. He didn't want him to live a life of sin. He loved Barnabas. He loved the other Jewish believers in Antioch. He wanted them to live obedient, fruitful lives for God. And when Paul saw that Peter's actions were hurting the Gentile Christians, Paul corrected Peter. Paul stood up for other people, people who were not like him. People from another country. People who had long been marginalized by his own people. Paul went to bat for them by correcting Peter. When done in love, correcting other people is both honoring to God and also helpful to the person we are correcting. If you're confronting actual sin in someone's life, you are helping them to see that sin, to repent of it, and to strive to put it to, get, put it to death and live a more holy life. What a good gift that is for them. It's paradoxical, but it is a good gift. It is not loving, it is not loving to let someone continue to sin and suffer the consequences. What is loving is to do the hard, uncomfortable work of confronting a brother or a sister with how their actions are dishonoring God, harming themselves, and harming others. But correction and conflict must be done correctly, which brings us to our last point. Christians give grace. Christians give grace. Paul had the courage and the boldness to go face to face with Peter when he saw what Peter was doing was wrong. By God's grace, we will have the same courage, the same boldness to do the same when necessary. But when doing so, we must make sure that we have correct facts and not act presumptuously or rashly. We need to ask questions, try to understand what's going on in that person's life. What are some of the situations? What's the context of the situation? Before offering correction, we should do that work first. Absolutely. We may discover, actually, hey, we were under a misunderstanding of what was going on here. No correction necessary. Keep my mouth shut. But once we do know that something is wrong, (laughs) that someone that we know is in sin who needs correction, we must act. We must correct. We said to not correct is unloving, but we must be gracious when offering correction. We must not be heavy-handed. We must be patient and gentle with one another. We need to remember that we too have been in need of much correction. We need to remember that we too have sinned much. And we need to remember that we too have have been forgiven much. When we remember that we are just as guilty and just as needy as the person that we are going to confront, we will approach them with humility and mercy. It doesn't mean don't confront. It doesn't mean don't correct. We need to do that. We need to help each other out. But we need to do it as... Forgiven sinners. Extending to others the grace that has been extended to us by our good and heavenly Father. Please pray with me. Father, we... uh, Father, you are the creator. You created us. You created us to honor you and obey you and glorify you. And we confess that, that we sin. We have sinned. We often sin. And Lord, we are, we ask that you give us godly sorrow for that sin. Please help us to, please help us to live for you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us the desire to obey you and that we would act on that desire that we would not sin, Father. Lord, we are so grateful that you have been gracious to us, that you have sent your Son who did not sin, who lived perfectly, died for us on the cross, rose from the grave. And through that, through that gospel, we receive grace. We can rest knowing That despite our sin, you look at Jesus and you see Jesus when you look at us. Lord, we ask that you would give us courage and boldness like Paul did in confronting Peter over his hypocrisy, over his sin. When we see other people, other brothers and sisters who are not living in step with the gospel, whose actions are harming themselves, harming others, dishonoring you, please give us the boldness, the courage to confront them. Help us not to shy away from hard, necessary conversations that we may need to have. And finally, Lord, we ask when we do have those conversations that you would please help us to be humble and gracious, remembering always that both of us, all of us are sinners in need of salvation. Help us to be humble. Help us to love each other well. Help us to correct each other, to encourage each other. Help us to disciple one another, God. We ask for that help in this church. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.